Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. With uh, family that goes to a cabin for the weekend, it's their annual cabin trip, and then unexpectedly, uh, an uncle and an aunt and their kids show up uninvited, unwelcomed, and it's this dynamic plays out about these two families trying to get together for the week, enjoying the time. But as the movie goes on, you realize that the reason that the uncle and aunt came was uh, they were really trying to scam their brothers into getting money because they were bankrupt. And when this uh, scene unfolds where they find out that they're really bankrupt in trouble, the wife is totally shocked and caught off guard. She has no idea what financial situation they were in. And, and you watch this and you're thinking, my goodness, what a terrible thing for a husband to do. To conceal something so difficult but so real from her wife and to surprise her and catch her off guard like that. My dear friends, Jesus is not like that at all. Uh, when there's a hard reality for us to swallow, Jesus says to us, hey, come on along and let's, let's walk through this together. I'm not going to conceal this from you. We're going to walk through this together. And that's what's happening in this passage today. So why don't we pray together and ask the Lord to give us grace to hear him, to hear this hard word, this hard reality as a word of grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you don't conceal reality from us. Thank you, O oh God, that as we read your word and walk through your word, there are times when we're just kind of stunned and taken off guard. And yet... This is your word of grace to your people. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, soften our minds and our hearts that we might receive your word as a word of grace from our loving Savior, Jesus himself. So I do pray, O oh God, that I might decrease and you might increase that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing to you, my God, my rock and my redeemer. So come and speak to your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, the suburbs are kind of an interesting place, aren't they? If you live in this area or in the surrounding areas, you know, you, you drive through the neighborhoods and everything seems pretty fine. Uh, the houses are pretty nice. The yards are typically kept up. There's nice vehicles in the driveways. Kids oftentimes are biking or running through the neighborhoods. All seems pretty calm, pretty normal, pretty well put together. Uh, Instagram can be a lot like that as well, right? You hop on Instagram and everyone's just putting their best face forward, their best pictures forward, and they're editing them to make sure they look better than they really are. And, and the, the crazy thing is, is that uh, we, we actually start to believe that what we see is what's really going on. You see, humanity has this crazy way of pretending things are better than they really are, don't we? We love to maintain the status quo. But let me ask this question. For those of us who think about the world that the next generation is growing up in, 
uh, what wells up inside of you when you think about that? And I don't know about you, but the word burden comes to my mind. The status quo, the, the current state of affairs isn't all that pleasant. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Things may appear to be okay on the surface at times, but we all know that the cultural moment that we are in is anything but okay. In our text today, what we see is Jesus looking out on the world around him, and we hear his burdened heart. The king has come, and the world would rather maintain the status quo on their way to hell than allow him to disrupt their lives with his saving grace. I've uh, called this sermon today, Disruptive Reign, How the Kingdom of God Shakes Up the Status Quo. Ever since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross, and he is set on it. His face is set like a flint towards Jerusalem. And as Jesus is getting closer and closer to the cross, Luke is, is showing us that, that Jesus' kingdom work is more surprising, more disruptive and urgent than most of the world is comfortable with. And friends, not much has changed, right? The world that we live in would rather maintain the status quo, not ruffle feathers, than let Jesus have his rightful reign in our lives. So, but here's the thing. God is calling us, his people, to display what he is really like to a world that ra would rather refuse him and maintain the status quo. So the question is, how in the world do we do that? In this text today, Luke's going to show us uh, one thing that we can't do and two things that we must do. So, let's walk through these. First, we must not settle for a false peace. Look with me at verses 49 through 53. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now I think this is one of the most shocking statements Jesus makes. It, it catches us off, off guard a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, surely Jesus came to bring peace, right? If Jesus would have paused long enough to let the disciples answer the question, of course they would have said, yeah, of course you came to bring peace. Listen to what Philip Ryken says. He, says. he says this. He says, The Jews of that time generally believed that when their Savior came, he would establish peace on earth by defeating Israel's enemies and building a golden kingdom. The expectation was based on all the ancient prophecies about the Prince of Peace. To some extent, this popular expectation gets reinforced in the Gospels. Before Jesus was born, Zechariah prophesied that God would guard our feet into the way of peace. Then at the time of his nativity, the angels announced, On earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Go in peace, Jesus would sometimes say. Later, the apostles picked up on this theme in their preaching, declaring that there is peace between Jews and Gentiles in Christ. Did Jesus come to give peace on earth? Absolutely. Well, at the same time, in a very real way, he came to bring division. Now, this doesn't really make sense to us until we understand what Jesus means when he says that he came to cast fire on earth and to be baptized with a very specific kind of baptism. 
So the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, he says that our God is a consuming fire. And in the scriptures, fire always has a twofold purpose. On, on one hand, fire consumes and destroys what it comes in contact with. On the other hand, it purifies and makes beautiful. And so Jesus is saying that he came to either consume in judgment or to purify by his grace and make us beautiful. And what about baptism? The image uh, clearly isn't talking about Jesus' baptism into the Jordan uh, River that John the baptizer baptized him earlier in Luke's gospel because that already happened. Jesus is looking ahead to a baptism. So what is he talking about? Jesus is talking about his baptism into death by crucifixion. And and this language should should immediately remind us of great biblical events like, like the Great Flood when you guys know the story, right? The whole earth was rebelling against God, and God poured out his judgment upon the entirety of the earth by flooding the world, but only a few were saved, those who trusted in God. It should also remind us of God's great acts of redemption throughout history, like the Exodus, when God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, right? Remember, he parted the Red Sea, and his people went freely through it, but then what happened? The enemies of God were were chasing the people down, and God crashed the waves of judgment upon the enemies of God. Jesus is saying that he's going to be swallowed up in the wrath of God in the place of his people upon the cross. And there are only two kinds of people. Those who receive the saving work of Jesus and those who refuse him. Those who embrace his coming kingdom and those who uh, suppress his disruptive reign. So Jesus simply states the inevitable reality of his cross work. There will be very real and deep divisions between those who center their lives around him and those who don't. And sometimes this division goes right to the closest relationships that we have. And this is heartbreaking, isn't it? Because we, we deeply love those who refuse the gospel. I mean, is there anything more gut-wrenching as a parent than having a kid walk away from the Lord? Is there anything more confusing and troubling than being a, a, a young man or young woman who falls in love with Jesus, wants to follow him, and your mom and dad or your siblings are saying things like, okay, that's great, but you're taking things too far. We feel that tension. Or maybe, maybe you go to school and you're the only Christian in your friend group. It's hard. So I want to be really clear about something. Just because Jesus is clear about this doesn't mean that he's flippant about it, that he doesn't care. Friends, Jesus is the one who came into the world to save sinners. He, he loves those who don't love him. So he's not casual about this. He's not careless about this. He's not heartless about this. He cares deeply about this. He's simply saying that this is the reality of his cross work. And here's the thing, he's placed us in these kinds of relationships that we might display to the world what he's really like. He's placed us right in the middle of these kinds of relationships. And so, as we know, uh, there is a very real temptation. Perhaps one of the greatest temptations we face in these types of relationships is to settle for a false sense of peace. Now you know what I mean. We're in certain social environments where, you know, we're the minority as Christians, and it's, it's easy to just blend in, to put our values and our identity and convictions on the shelf. 
Uh, we, we, we live in a world that is upside down, a world that is bent on keeping Jesus at arm's length. We, we live in a culture where it's acceptable to be a Christian as, as long as we keep our convictions private and maintain the status quo. As long as we don't ruffle too many feathers. Friends, to put our Christianity on the shelf in, in settings where people reject Jesus is the most unloving thing that we can do. The most loving thing that we can do in these types of social settings where, where people want to push Jesus out and, and maintain the status quo, the, the most loving thing we can do is to maintain our convictions and not settle for a false sense of peace. How else will they know what Jesus is like? Have you guys ever heard the phrase, or do you know what it means to be self-differentiated? Uh, it's something that uh, is actually super important. And as you start like observing like what this is, you see it everywhere, right? So here's what a, a self-differentiated person is, is someone who has clarity and convictions as to who they are, what their values are, and what their calling and purpose is. And and they live in light of those realities no matter what the social dynamic around them is trying to force them into. A self-differentiated person embodies a non-anxious, non-reactive presence. A self-differentiated person isn't arrogant or rude or abrasive. A self-differentiated person is just confident in who they are. And they dwell there. It's the idea of sticking out and being okay with it. When Jesus rescues someone, we know this, right? Everything changes. We just sang it. Jesus changes everything. Our identity, our values, our priorities, our purpose, everything changes. Nothing in our lives is untouched by Jesus. Now, the temptation we all face is to simply blend back into to ease the anxious reactivity of everyone around us. You know, we know what this is like, right? Maybe, maybe we go to a family gathering, and uh, we, we have a meal, and the meal comes, and everyone just starts digging in. But we want to thank God for the meal. We want to do something like pray. And so we, we don't make a scene out of it, but we, you know, we close our eyes, and we, we thank God privately for the meal that he's provided. We thank him for the occasion of being with people. And then we say, amen. We look up, and we realize that the, the temperature in the room has changed. Things got a little weird. Things got a little awkward suddenly. No one's saying anything, but we can feel the tension there. Or, or maybe, maybe you're at school or at work and uh, your friends start, you know, joking about ridiculous things. Or maybe you're a guy and, and your friends start objectifying women and start saying absurd things about the opposite sex. And they start laughing about it and they're looking to you to join in on them. It's an awkward thing, isn't it, to, to not play into that game? The pressure's real. The, 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 the temptations to simply chuckle, to, to ease the tension is, is real. We all feel that. Or maybe you're married and your spouse doesn't really want anything to do with Jesus in the church. And, and we're presented with the temptation to simply blend in and settle for a false sense of peace. But what we're called to do is embody a non-anxious presence in the middle of a deeply divided world. We're, we're called to stand firm on our convictions, or as Edwin Freeman says, to not have a failure of nerve. I want to get really practical here for, for just a, a couple moments. So, so the question is, we, we probably all agree with this, right? The question is, how in the world do we actually do this? Uh, how, do, how do we grow in becoming self-differentiated? And so we don't settle for a sense of false peace. Now, the, the first thing that we need to do is to iron out some core realities. 
um, personally. Right? So we need to embrace who God says that we are. We all have a life story, don't we, as to what other people have said, who we are, the, the names they've called us, the comments they've made, for better or worse. We all have a life story of what we've said we are. But what does God say we are? Who does God say that we are? Friends, we're, we're his chosen possession. We're the redeemed. We're his children, adopted into his family. Our families might be a total disaster, but we're in God's family. We're his ambassadors, called to proclaim his good news gospel. We're his saints, his holy ones, set apart. You might be saying, I don't feel very holy and saintly, but like Gabe, Pastor Gabe said this morning, because we have faith in Christ, we are justified in the sight of God. We have peace with God. He sees us as holy and righteous and blameless. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We're his bride. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. And here's the thing. We need to embrace these realities. These are the identities that need to be shaping our minds and hearts. These are the things that need to be rolling over our head over and over again. The next thing that we need to iron out are what our values are. What are God's kingdom values? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but it's pretty simple, isn't it, to simply adopt values based on the, the music we listen to, the friends we hang out with, the social groups we're in, maybe the news stations we listen to. We just assume and adopt certain values. How many of us have ever stopped, slowed down, and thought through, what does God value? What are God's kingdom values? But we need to think through these things, right? God, God's all about things like generosity, and, and love and service and truth and integrity. We need to embrace God's values for our lives. Next, we need to hear uh, to be clear on God's purpose for our lives. Right? At the end of the day, we are here to glorify God. And at the end of the day, we live before an audience of one. We're, when everything is said and done, whatever else we do, at the bottom of it all, our purpose is to know and love God and display his beauty in this world. Right? So we, the first thing that we need to do is really develop convictions about our identity as children of God, our values as kingdom citizens, and our purpose of knowing, loving, and making God known. We need to start there. But, but what about in the moment? Right? What, how in the world, when we can start to feel our hearts melt within us out of fear and anxiety, temptation to blend in. In that moment, what do we do? Uh, I want to give us <laughs> four quick R's to help us out. You might want to take a picture of this. I think we have a slide for it. The first thing we have to do is recognize the various pressures that we face. We just got to recognize it. So often we go through, through life and we're just reacting to everything. We don't actually slow down long enough to recognize what the social dynamic is in our lives and what we're facing. We have to recognize the temptations that we face. The next thing we have to do is remember that others' reactions don't define our identity, value, or purpose. God does. How easy is it to get into a social setting and subconsciously believe the lie that how others respond or react to me is, is really my value and identity? Friends, God defines those things. And he is crystal clear on it, and it is unwavering and unchanging. The next thing we have to do is regulate our emotional reactions. After we think through who God says we are, what God says we should value, what God says our purpose is, we need to bring our emotional responses in line with those realities. How easy is it to just respond anxiously to anxious uh, cultures? How easy is it to just respond angrily when, when we're offended? How easy is it to respond uh, <laughs> with a quick word that's sharp and unloving? 
We need to slow down and regulate our emotional responses. And lastly, we need to receive by faith God's purpose for us in that moment. Sometimes that means not saying a word. Be slow to speak. Sometimes that means speaking the truth in love. Husbands, it means that we, we sacrifice and serve our wives. Wives, it means that we respect our husbands. Parents, it means that we are gracious and gentle and not provoking our kids to anger. We have to receive God's purpose for us in that moment and trust him. So the first way we display what God is like to the world that refuses him is being resolute on not settling for a false sense of peace. We must not settle for a false peace. But then we also must learn to live according to the time. This is point number two. Look with me at verse 54 through 56. He also said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So here Jesus turns to the, the crowd of people, and, and he rebukes them pretty strongly. He says, look, you all know how to read the weather but you're totally missing it and ignoring the significance of the unfolding plan of God. It's not that they were wrong about the weather, but they were wrong about discerning the significance of Jesus. They should have seen what was really going on in front of them. They, they, they should have noticed who Jesus was and, and the significance of the moment, but they totally missed it. Here's what Philip Ryken says again. He says, what specifically should they have seen? Luke is a gospel of knowing for sure. And it has shown us what Jesus was saying and doing. People should have learned from his teaching that he spoke with divine authority. This was a man who took the old promises about salvation and said, they're fulfilled in my ministry. They should have seen from his miracles that he had true divine power. This was a man who ruled the waves and cast out demons by the finger of God. If people had been able to interpret the times, they would have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah who had come to bring salvation. The crowds could discern some things, but not the most important things. Discernment simply means that we have the right judgment about what's right and true. Jesus is saying, you got some things right, but, but, but you're missing the most significant things. They can tell what the weather will do, great, but they can't tell what the Messiah is like. They had all these expectations as to what Jesus was supposed to be like, and he didn't fit their boxes, and as a result, they totally and completely missed him. But you know what I like about this text? <laughs> this is helpful for us. Uh, it says that those who don't know Jesus can get a lot of things right. This tells us that a fundamental posture towards the culture shouldn't necessarily be us against them. It certainly shouldn't mean that we get prideful and popped up and look down our noses at folks. I mean, everyone in here who's a believer in Jesus Christ, if we're honest with ourselves for half a second, we realize that he saved us by his grace alone and we can't boast in anything. We can actually be generous and honest that the culture does get a lot of things right and we can learn and glean a lot from all sorts of folks. We should, without hesitation, affirm what the culture gets right. But Jesus is also saying, that apart from knowing him, 
we get the main things wrong. In other words, we don't actually understand the world we live in or what it's all about apart from Jesus. See, 2,000 years ago, they missed the significance of the coming of Jesus. Today, many people miss the significance of the reign of Jesus. Friends, after Jesus rose from the dead, he declared that all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And then when he ascended to heaven, it says, though the king was taking his throne to begin exercising his dominion. We live in the time and under the reign of King Jesus. And his kingdom is growing whether we recognize it or not, whether we acknowledge that or not. Jesus Christ is king and Lord of all. As Abraham Kuyper famously stated, he said, there is not one square inch in the whole of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. When we say that Jesus is Lord, what we mean is that he's Lord over everything. That there is nothing that is off limits to him. That there is nothing in this world that isn't related to him. That there is nothing outside the sphere of his wisdom and power and reign. What we mean by saying that Jesus is Lord is that everything is rightly understood only when we see it in light of who Jesus is. He is the lens by which we view all things. The reality that Jesus is Lord means that Jesus has first and final say on all things. That we take our cues from him first and foremost. See, if the world's ever going to see what Jesus is like, what our God is really like, then we must learn to live according to the time of the reign of King Jesus. And that shapes all of reality. For example, who defines what marriage is? Is it Jesus or the state? Who defines what sexuality and gender is? Is it Jesus or the culture? Who defines what social justice is? Who defines what is true and false? Who defines what is right and wrong? Who is it that tells us what is virtuous and what is a vice? Who tells us how we should spend our time and money? Who tells us what love is and what hate is? You, you get what I'm saying. The reality that Jesus is Lord presses into every area of our lives. And we live in a world that says, you do you. That I'm the source of my truth in my own life. That what I want, I deserve. We live in a world where the message is that the highest good and the most courageous thing we could ever do is be true to ourselves. And we actually get to define what that means. The narrative that we hear over and over again is that we can be whatever we want to be, that we can do whatever we want to do. Do you realize how many lives are utterly destroyed by believing these things? I mean, this is sad. These are real people who believe these lies, like real people, like your neighbors and family members and mine. The things that we listen to and believe have real consequences. And we live in a society that recoils when someone has the courage to stand up and say, it's just not true. It's just not true. For example, like someone who's born a man will never be a woman, no matter how they feel. Or social injustice and racism is real, but, but critical race theory is not going to solve the problem. We need Jesus Christ and his gospel. Or not all belief systems are equal. Jesus alone is the way to eternal life. Like, we need to be courageous enough to say these things. Who has first and final say? Is it Jesus or is it the spirit of the age? Waterbrook, if the world is ever going to know what Jesus is like, then we must learn to live, to live according to the time, according to the reign of King Jesus. But here's the thing. 
His reign is a gracious reign. He's ruling that he might rescue rebels. His reign is a patient reign. He's not quick to anger. The fact that we're all here today tells us how unbelievably patient Jesus is with us. His reign is an unrivaled reign. It seems like everything is out of control, but he is exercising his perfect will that is unchallenged and unable to be thwarted, and his reign is a loving reign. This is the king who died on the cross to save sinners like me and you. Praise God that Jesus is king and no other. If we're going to live according to the reign of Jesus, we must know what he's like and what his will is. We must be growing in our understanding as to who he is and, and what his will is. Friends, we need to be saturated in the scriptures. We need to swim in the word of God. God's word needs to be the narrative that rolls around in our minds over and over again. We need to be deeply involved in the scripture-saturated community of God, the church. We need to hear these things from one another over and over again. We need to help one another when we're faced with hardships. How to, how to live in light of the reign of King Jesus in the various circumstances that we find ourselves in. Right? I remember uh, I used to, to work in a, in a rehab down in Florida, and it was, um, I'm so thankful for this time of life. I was working with a local church nearby, and we were helping uh, bridge the gap between the church and the rehab, and we were building out like a, a Christian program, a Christ-centered program within this rehab, which is a miracle in and of itself, because the, the owners and all the executives, none of them were Christians. <laughs> we just had this wide open door to preach the gospel and to disciple these kids, uh, out of these young men and women, out of, out of addiction and into a relationship with Christ. It was amazing. God was doing amazing things. I remember, though, one day, uh, one of my superiors said I needed to take uh, some clients to the mosque. They were Muslim, and they wanted to, to worship Allah. And as a Christian, like, obviously not on board with that. Um, <laughs> but political correctness would say that I definitely have to do that because we're preaching the gospel of Jesus every day here. We're, we're bringing people to church every day and my bosses want me to do it and I'm just utterly torn. Have you guys found yourself in situations like that where as a Christian you're just in this really difficult place? And, uh, what do we do? I didn't know what to do. So I, uh, like that day I got on the phone and you know, called a bunch of friends in the church and texted some of the leaders in the church and I got together with folks in the church to get together to pray and process through what in the, what does it look like to honor Jesus in this moment? I'll never forget it. Uh, one of the guys, one of my leaders at the time, he said, hey John, let's, let's read Daniel chapter one through three. Let's see what God has to say about similar situations like this. Now if you're familiar with the story of Daniel, Andrea just led a, a play this, last su this summer that is about the book of Daniel, which is amazing. Uh, the book of Daniel is about the faithfulness of God in hard places. Um, young, young Jewish men were taken from Israel and brought into Babylon, which is uh, the godless representative of the godless cities of the world. And time and time again in the book of Daniel, what you see is these young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're put into situations where it's either bow the knee to a false god or, or, or be killed. And what you see time and time again is God gives them the grace to stand firm, to honor the one true God, the one true living God, Yahweh, Jesus, and God delivers them every time. God is faithful every time. So I remember reading this with my friends, pondering, what the heck do I do at this rehab? Do I, do I bring these clients to the mosque and, and, and settle for a false sense of peace, or do I try and honor my King Jesus? And I remember reading that and thinking, oh, this is so obvious. If I get fired, so be it. God will be with me. God is good. I'm under the reign of King Jesus, and he's the faithful one. 
He's the faithful one. And it was amazing. Uh, I could tell more stories about how God showed up after that. But the point of the matter is, we need to know the word. We need to know who God is and what he's like. And we need one another to remind ourselves of that. You see, if we're going to stand firm and display what our God is like to a world that wants to refuse him and maintain the status quo, we must be saturated in the scriptures and deeply involved in the scripture-saturated community because we can't do this alone. It's the only way we're going to learn to live according to the time of Jesus' reign and rule. Lastly, we must learn to be decisive. Look with me at verse 57 through 59. Jesus says, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. R.T. France, he's a, he's a scholar. He makes this comment about this passage. He says, here we have an everyday scene that illustrates the need to take timely action and not let things drift. Once the legal process has started, there is no way out. This last point is really a call to action for all of us. You know, lots of cultural commentators make the, make the observation uh, that with the rise of the amount of data and information and options we have, that indecision and fear of commitment has become the norm. We, we, we live in a world and a culture where like, committing to something and making a decision is like terrifying. By and large, the culture is paralyzed with, with fear of actually making a decision. We're, we're terrified that if we, if we make a choice and fail, that's the end of us. We're afraid of the what-ifs, and so we, we never actually do anything. Jesus is speaking in no unclear terms here. The first and foremost application here is that if you're here this morning or you're online and you don't identify as a Christian, today is the day that you need to be made right with God. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that each and every one of us is on our way to judgment. Like 10 out of 10 of us are going to die unless Jesus returns first. Which means that each of us will have to give an account for the lives that we lived. But here's the good news. Jesus is offering terms of peace right now. Jesus went to the cross and was judged for you so that you wouldn't ever have to fear condemnation. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you grew up in church, but you've never actually repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus. Maybe you've attended church for many years and you've gotten comfortable with living a nominal life, but you've never actually made peace with God. You, you have no real relationship with Jesus. Jesus is saying, today is the day. Right now. You can have peace with God if you repent of your sin. That is, turn from being the Lord of your own life and trusting in Jesus by faith, acknowledging that he is Lord. Friends, he'll have you. Don't delay. Come to Jesus right now by faith. This is also a call to action for, for those of us who are genuine Christians. So here's a question. In what ways have, have we been on the fence and, and, and indecisive in terms of our walk with Jesus? Maybe you've been fearful of being known as a Christian in your school or workplace. It's time to plant your flag. Not arrogantly, not abrasively, but genuinely. 
Maybe you've been in a dating relationship that you know is ungodly, and you've been wavering back and forth as to what to do. Perhaps it's time to make the decision to walk away and honor Jesus. This isn't meant to be uh, any kind of manipulative move or anything, but as Pastor Gabe said in the announcements, we have fall ministries coming up here at church, and we need lots of help. We need lots of help. We need help in nursery and Sunday school and youth ministry and young adult ministry and worship ministry and the tech ministry and hospitality and ushers and greeters. We need lots of help, and God is calling us as a people of God to love and care for the people of God. Maybe making a decision for some of you is saying, yeah, no, I'm going to commit to serving for the next year. I'm just going to commit. I'm going to go for it. I know I'm fearful. I know I have all sorts of questions. But I'm going to actually dedicate some time to serving the church. I'm going to sacrifice. Uh, maybe, for some of us, being decisive means keep doing what you're doing. Keep pressing on. You're tempted to, to waver to the left or the right with all sorts of other things, but God has called you to a very specific, special ministry. And you're tempted to waver, to, to say yes to other things. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Don't stop. Waterbrook. The kingdom of God has broken into this world and is disrupting everything. God has placed us here and now so that we might display to the world what he is really like. The disruption that he causes is good news. The disruption that he brings is always about the glory of his name and the good of his people. So we, we, we get to display to the world what he is really like by not settling for a false peace and being okay with standing out as Christians, by learning to joyfully and confidently live under the reign of King Jesus, by immersing ourselves in the word of God and the community of God's people, and lastly, by being decisive, taking a stand for Christ, getting off the fence of indecision. Who knows what God will do? <laughs> but what we do know is it's going to be good and glorious and wonderful. And in the end, it will all be worth it. Amen? All right, let's pray. Oh God, thank you that you came into this world to save sinners. Our hearts break over the fact that there are people that we know who don't know you. Our heart breaks over the fact that, Lord, we live in this time between your first coming and second coming where sin and death are still real, but we are rock solid confident that Jesus, you reign over everything. And so we pray, oh God, now that as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, that you would give us the grace uh, to do business with you because you're doing business with us. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen. Um, if you don't have, uh, we're gonna move into the Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.